and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Today is our first panel discussion, and I am here with Camille Fournier and Juan Pablo Buritica to explore the latest development trends further. When Camille was our guest, we talked about engineering productivity and how Two Sigma keeps its developers engaged. Camille is managing director at Two Sigma. And when Juan was our guest, we talked about scaling distributed engineering teams and how to manage fast growth in remote teams. Juan was at the time VP of engineering at Splice. Um, Let me welcome you both and say we are extremely happy to have you again on the show. And first, I would like to ask you both to introduce yourselves a little bit to perhaps listeners who haven't tuned in before. Where are you in your careers? What are you doing these days? Camille, would you start? Sure, happy to start. So hi, it's nice to be here. Where am I in my career? So yes, I as I am a managing director at a company called Two Sigma. Two Sigma is a quantitative hedge fund here in New York City. I manage the platform engineering team. Um, so that is all of the core software components for compute, public cloud, private cloud, Kubernetes, storage, software development tools. The reliability engineering organization is also part of what I sort of oversee at a very high level, which is a new challenge for me a little bit. So I have I have about 200 people overall in the sort of umbrella of areas that I'm working on these days. Uh, yeah, I guess that's where I am in my career right now. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Hi, Carolina. Thank you for having me again. Uh, it's wonderful to share the space with Camille. We're almost neighbors. We live pretty close by here in New York City. So yeah, I'm, I'm Juan Pablo. When we recorded, yes, I was the VP of engineering at Splice. I have since taken a small break. And since the 2nd of January, I've been recharging my batteries from working for startups for so long, <laughs> trying to figure out what I want to do. So for now, I've been supporting some companies in their distributed operations because the world is interesting at this moment. So I have I have been running a small consulting company, helping companies scale their engineering teams or adapt to very fast emergency remote work. And I'm also, I think I, I just published a guide to remote work uh, with Holloway, which came out unofficially last week and officially it comes out on Tuesday the 31st. Uh, it's a very thorough, like 300 page guide on, on distributed work. And yeah, not, not running a team for a little bit. Let's see what comes along. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So let's start by tying into some current events. In our research, over 76% of companies said that they allow remote work. And now with uh, the current events and um, coronavirus, it is seemingly not a large enough number, or at least it's changing the atmosphere of remote work. 
you guys said that you are both calling from New York, but I can see that you are both in your own apartments. How are you handling working remotely? Did it change anything for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, so my company is definitely not a remote company. So we have offices all over what well, we, we have. We have globally distributed offices. My team is in London, New York and Houston, Texas. Reliability engineering also has people in, in Asia. But by and large, we have been very much a office centric company. So even though we're globally distributed to some extent, people still go into the offices in those locations. Fortunately, my boss, when he joined Two Sigma about five years ago, really pushed for them to make it much easier for people to work from home by enabling laptops, which we just didn't really have the easy ability to do for a while. So actually, I'm celebrating my three-year anniversary today, actually. And uh, when I joined, the only way to work from home was to like use the VPN and use your you know RSA key and get to the VPN. And it was really clunky and very slow. And he pushed very hard to make it so that we have laptops that actually operate like they're on the company network when you turn them on. And that has been a game changer. I think we would be in a significantly worse situation right now if we didn't have that. Um, so we have the ability to work from home. There's a huge difference between having the ability to work from home and having people occasionally work from home and having the entire company now forcefully working from home because we are in the midst of a global pandemic. So we are all working, at least, you know, those of us who aren't sick or, you know, otherwise uh, out for whatever reason, and things are getting done, but it is definitely a completely new experience. I mean, I've never managed a fully remote team. So I'm learning a lot from Juan and his, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading his new thing from Holloway on remote work, partly because it's like, all right, like, there's a lot that I need to learn and a lot of new techniques I need to like pick up for how to do this well, even knowing that it's probably not a permanent setup, right? I don't think my company is going to become a remote company forever, but obviously we want to do our best during this time. But it is very different than the comfort of like meeting people in person. And I have found certainly that doing all of my meetings over video chat, it's not bad, but it's definitely not the same as being in person with someone. It's a huge adjustment. I have seen a little bit of this, not just from Camille, but from many companies that have had to switch, right? So I don't, I don't have that much of a job right now, so I haven't been affected. And I have been able to see my, la my, my former team, right, Splice, which was a hybrid organization. So engineering ran 100% distributed, even though we had some desks in New York and some people will, would, would commute. Um, we set it up in a way where we worked distributed. We were independent as much as possible from time zones, but completely independent from, from like physical locations. And interestingly enough, the company was able to shift to fully remote work fairly easily because all meetings already had a Zoom link. The, everything was set up in a way where like, it is very likely we'll have a remote person join. So the documentation was already in place. Uh, communication was already in place. There's a lot of like foundations that we had where uh, it, it seems like now they are just, they added a couple of yoga classes to keep people <laughs> focused. And there's some 
some stuff, but it's actually, it is coincidentally improved the experience of remote workers or engineers who are used to having to sort of pry information when it, when decisions happen in the same place or when like a meeting ends and you hang up and then there was a comment at the end that changed the outcome of the meeting that stopped happening. So it seems like Splice has been doing well. I don't believe that they will become a hundred percent distributed organization either, but I've, I've noticed that the difference between having the foundations around communication and collaboration built on, on this, like we are a distributed organization has helped not just those who were already remote, but, but everyone, everyone else. And I've, I've talked to more than a few companies and I do, I do want to make a distinction. So I found, I found it interesting in the report that companies perceive that they allow for remote work 70% of the times, right? But what, what we've seen is that they are, the majority of companies are not ready to actually work remotely. And there is a distinction between having, and I think Camille was, was making that distinction. There is a distinction, like we sometimes work from home, we are capable of, and it's a really far edge of, we are a distributed company and we can operate effectively or even better remotely. And it may be a red herring. I think many people were convinced that because sometimes some employees could work from home or remotely or from travel that they were ready if it happened and they're starting to see all the like all the holes in their operations and all all the like, oh, this is in this meeting room where this drawing it has never moved and we don't have a virtual. So can you come to the office and take a picture? I've heard some crazy stories. So it is interesting and I would I would actually like to see how this how this score evolves over time because because I, I, I would imagine it's a surprise. Mm -hmm. Thank you. With that said, how do you think the current events will change the industry if in any way? You both pointed out some technical aspects of working from home and also some communications related aspects of working from home. Will you take any steps to enhance your abilities? Or if Juan Pablo, you want to share some of um, your findings from the, the report that you published, what kind of new perspective is this situation going to give you? So I've noticed at the beginning when, when sort of working from home was becoming imminent and companies were starting to get ready, you saw a barrage of remote work influencers just all over the place like oh it's the future of work and we're so ready for it and your company and wow and here's all my tips and everyone was like a, a i told you so kind of <laughs> vibe on the internet like oh I, I knew this was gonna come and look the biggest work from home experiment in wuhan and whatever and then people actually started going into remote work and seeing like wait what this is terrible and it's because I'd say the, the first thing that will change companies and, and I don't know which way it will turn out, but the experience that people are having working remotely right now or working in general is terrible, right? There's this general anxiety. There's this, the, what's going to happen? Is the economy going to tank or is it not? And for people who are already working remote, they're, they're struggling through the like normal feelings, right? They're going through this general anxiety. 
And then people who had never worked remotely and were not set up and have their kids at home and like then their partner is taking calls six feet away. They're having a terrible, terrible time. And this may either color their experience about remote work, you know, like I never want to do this ever again. And I don't know how you feel this is the, the future work. I can't. And it's also something I've said for, for a long time. I don't think remote work is for everyone. And it isn't this wonderful accessibility world that makes it great for everyone. There's some people who struggle a lot working remotely or being away from, from others. And it just, it's, it's contextual. So after, after this sort of trend of everyone saying remote work, remote work, then you had hundreds of work from home tips from people who had maybe done it from their perspective or had, and it, it got saturated. Like everyone was here. I was also, I was actually worried that my guide was going to come out in the same, in the same sort of environment that we had been working on it for six months. But now that it's settled a little bit and people are actually learning, I believe the companies will try to figure out how to be ready for this better, right? How to incorporate some of these practices, which in the end may be, make, may make them more effective overall. Um, but I believe that, and, and I hope not, but I believe that some people are going to come out with a really poor experience of working remotely and they're not going to want to try it again or, or, or be in places where, 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 where they are set up for this. Camille, what, what do you, how, how has your working from home experience been? I mean, I, you know, like I am extremely lucky that I, I moved right as this was all really coming down. So I just, I moved about two weeks ago and I, I basically like the last day before they said everyone should work from home was the last day I came into the office and I wouldn't have come into the office if it weren't for the fact that I had all my stuff was in boxes being moved to a new apartment. So I didn't really have anywhere to be. And fortunately I moved to a bigger apartment. So I have a space with a door that closes because I'm on video chats all day, every day. Like that is my job. My job is being in meetings. I, I've never liked working from home. Like I have done, I have done it more as like a, an independent person when I, you know, but when I was in a situation like Wanzen where I had left front the runway and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and trying to start startups and do things like that, I would often work from home. So at least in that regard, I'm set up and that I have a desk and a chair, which is more than a lot of my employees even have. But I don't like being home all day. You know, I find it just like alienating and lonely, even when I'm doing video calls. I mean, I think Juan's absolutely right that like, I do think we'll all learn a little something from this. I think hopefully companies will get a little bit better at explicit communication, writing things down, sharing things in, in Slack or email or docs or whatever. You know, I, I do think if we're lucky, that will be the good outcome. But, you know, it's, it's funny. My boss worked for IBM. IBM at some point did like a massive experiment of trying to let everyone work from home. And he worked at IBM through the period where they did that and then I believe pulled it back. And he has actually always been somewhat down on remote work, I think for that exact reason that he said, look, I was at a company where we tried to do this at massive scale and it did not work. It was not productive. Like it just, it, it, it didn't feel good. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. Like I, I think 
that we will see a lot of senior leadership that, you know, is like, well, we've got to do this. We got to get through this, but this is convinced like not, not even just employees who are unhappy working from home. And we are in, as, as Juan said, this is like the worst circumstance we're working from home because we are all stressed out about what the heck is going on in the wider world. A lot of us have children at home that we're having to homeschool, which is like a huge amount of work and like, you know, massive props to teachers. It's just, it's massive amounts of work to homeschool a kid. And even if you're, if you, if you're like super casual about it, it's like, oh, we're just going to work on, you know, a couple hours a day. And then you do your thing. It's like, you're still having to wrangle these kids every day. I've been in at least two meetings where there's been a baby in the background. And it's like, you know, and I have no problem with that, but like, it's hard. It's hard being focused when you're worried about your toddler is going to come up and like, you know, bang on your laptop. I also think personally that companies, because we're in such a stressful economic situation, companies are doing counterproductive things like actually, you know, implementing a lot of like change control processes. It's like, oh, well, now that we're all working from home, we better not release our code too much. And we better make sure everything we're releasing is going through like a lot of approvals and we're basically going to freeze things. And I think that is also going to contribute to the overall impression that working from home is super unproductive because like, guess what? Like change control does not result in good outcomes. Like all of the research on this topic shows that in fact, you want to be as light touch as possible with your change control processes. And right now, while we're doing a lot of things that you just see, I mean, every giant companies, I've heard people at giant companies that you know very well where their orgs have been like, well, we're just going to go into a change freeze until this whole thing blows over. And it's like, you're telling 10,000 people that they're not releasing software for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. They're not going to be productive. And oh my God, the mess you're going to have to clean up when they all get back to work and try to actually merge the work that they've been doing for the last however many weeks in and get it out. It's going to be months of cleanup. So I do think that while we will all learn a little something and maybe there are some small companies where this will be a formative moment for them and that will push them much more down a distributed path. My suspicion is that for bigger companies, this is going to just reinforce the stereotypes that they already had about remote work unless they are extremely thoughtful about how they approach it and don't do stupid things like make massive change freezes or expect everything to be synchronous, right? This is one thing that's in the guide to remote work that Juan, Juan built, right? Which is like, you know, you really can't expect a ton of synchronous work if you're doing these remote teams effectively. And like, that's just not the way in-person companies work. Like we, we expect a lot of synchronous work. And, and I think that's going to be really hard. Yeah, I think let's say plus one to everything that Camille say. Biggest challenge with remote work is trust. Like one of the most foundational things you need is to be able to trust people and to let go, to, to control through different means, for example, especially when you're in leadership. And when you start losing control and you start creating different mechanisms to try to get it back. And there's, I've heard about companies rolling out uh, screen recording uh, mechanisms for like surveillance, right? And then uh, the, there's this, all these security things because there's a different understanding of how trust, especially when you're huge, uh, works. I would say that one of the biggest learnings from writing the guide was, or lessons, not learnings, one of the biggest lessons, that we actually don't know if remote teams are more productive. There's no research that proves it. There isn't research that proves the opposite either, but 
when we started looking at, and this was Courtney, who was our editor, when she started looking at all the blog posts that said like, oh, since remote teams are more productive, like chasing down the references, everyone writes about the same two surveys that are anecdotal about people saying that they feel more productive when they're remote, but we don't know for a fact. And I think the combination of the perception, hey, this remote work is the future of work, Teams are more productive and the expectations that we set hit with this current reality is going to be, it's going to be interesting. And, and, I, and I do hope that we can come over on a, on a better end on the other side. Thank you. And with that, let's circle back to, to the challenges that we have in the state of software development, uh, which is actually based on research. We, we interviewed over um, 700 people all over the world engineering managers said that their top challenge was capacity. So that the amount of work that has to be done versus the available work capacity of the developers. What do you think about this number? How do you manage capacity? How do you manage the business requirements with your developers available time? There's like some rule that work always expands to fill the available time. You know, that that's really more of a rule of like, if you make a long project plan, even if it could be done sooner, somehow the project will always drag to the very end of the plan. There's always more to be done than, than you can do. I think it's very rare. Uh, I think it's very rare to be in a situation where there isn't a backlog. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I would be very worried about my job if my teams weren't busy, right? And frankly, my experience with engineers is that like when they aren't busy, they get bored and anxious. So, so in some sense, it's good that we always feel these capacity pressures, even though I understand it. I understand the stress that comes from that. What I would say is a huge part of the job of engineering management is prioritization and understanding what's important and understanding both from the business or partner perspective, what is important to them, understanding from the technical perspective, what's important for your team for their well-being, for the technical well-being of the team, from the people perspective, what's important for their well-being as well, and sort of balancing all of those different values and, you know, focuses to, to prioritize the work of the team. You know, I think when you see engineering managers um, struggle, you tend to see them struggle in that either they are too accommodating of the requests coming into the team, and they never push back and they, they will just say yes to everything. It's like, oh, you need that? Yes, we'll do it. Oh, you need that? Yes, we'll do it. And all of a sudden the team is like completely overwhelmed. They've, oh, you've overpromised work that the team cannot possibly deliver. And you just sort of expect the team to work harder and deliver it, which never works and people burn out and they leave. Sometimes though you see engineering managers go to the opposite side and they say no all the time to protect their team. And then the team doesn't end up actually being productive because of that. Like I, I've actually found that managers who over prioritize making their team happy, the team always thinks that their manager is great. But simultaneously, usually the members of the team are actually themselves fairly unhappy when you talk to them. And they never know what to pin it on. But my experience is that actually they should be pinning it on their manager who isn't pushing them. I don't think that most engineers actually want a manager who is a complete pushover and will just let them work on whatever they want to work on and never ask for anything from them. I actually think most people are not so self-directed 
that their ideal job is just do whatever you want. Um, people say that. Lots of people say that. Lots of people believe that. I think I probably believe that about myself at some point in my life. I know that to be extremely not true at this point. Right? I actually want to have some sense that the things I'm doing are important for someone else, right? Like I actually feel better when I know that what my team is working on, what I'm working on is actually in service of a larger goal. And I think it's very rare for people to just be able to work on things and be satisfied with that without a larger goal. And so I think, you know, managers who push back very hard on external requirements and kind of let their teams just do whatever they want, often with teams that are not really very productive. And those teams think that their manager is great, but then are also usually very unhappy. So, you know, I think my advice to managers who are feeling, you know, stressed out about capacity that they just don't have enough people. It's like, I definitely am sympathetic. And like, that is probably true. But I also think that that's kind of the job all the time, right? So you always, you know, you never really have quite enough people. What is the most important thing to be doing? Figure out how to balance that importance between external requirements, but also like, don't just, you know, neglect operational stuff on your team. Don't neglect tech debt completely because if you do, then your team won't be able to get anything done. They'll be swamped under, you know, alerts and, and problems and they won't be able to change the code quickly. And that will be a problem. And obviously, like, you can't completely neglect the team working on things that inspire them. And you can sell work as inspirational to some extent. And really good managers are good at, like, taking a project that you may think is like, oh, this seems like kind of boring, like drudge work and selling it to their team as by how much value it delivers the business or, you know, whatever. But sometimes you have to do something that somebody who used to work for me called a renting focus. So he would say that like, look, you rent focus from engineers by letting them sometimes work on projects that they think are really interesting that may you may or may not think have the value proven. You sometimes need to let them do that because that is how you get them to work on the, the stuff that they consider to be more tedious work the other time, right? You can't just always be asking them, you know, to fix the CSS or whatever, right? Sometimes you've got to give them something more creative or something that they are really passionate about to work on. So that's kind of how I think a little bit about capacity. Thank you. I think I'd be worried if my managers were not worried about capacity. I, I think if it, like the natural state of teams is there's so much to do. If, if you don't have, if you don't have a huge backlog of things to do, then the, the business has a very different problem and it either doesn't know what it's, it's supposed to be doing or work isn't being thought through. I don't know. I, I do think that when when product organizations or product engineering organizations are working well, then engineering is the bottleneck and that's fine. I would be concerned. So I, I, I saw the, in, in the report, how engineers are more concerned about time management than managers or ICs at least. And I, I do worry in the capacity angle, the impact that modern work tools are bringing on us like chats or open offices or open th this need to always be collaborating. There is this perspective that software and creating products, you need to always be collaborating and brainstorming and let's do all these design sprints. And there's all these exercises that just are taking focus away from just do getting work done. And 
when you're a manager, and I think this is something I, I learned from Camille once, which is when you're a manager, your time is not yours, right? Your time belongs to your team. And when you're an IC, yeah, your, your, your domain is your time. And something I noticed when I was a manager and I wasn't getting interrupted and I wasn't, at least right after I left Splice and I was trying to get this guide written and I couldn't do work, I couldn't focus because I was waiting to get interrupted is that I was probably going to my team when I felt like I wasn't being busy and I would try to find either create meetings or create things to, to feel like I was doing work. And this may be reflected in this, in this report in that way, right? Engineers are concerned about their focus. There's all these things that are competing for their attention and they may not be getting work done. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there is the perception that meetings are bad and why do we have so many meetings? So there needs to be a balance because meetings are important and work like good meetings have a huge impact in productive work. And that's how you make decisions and that's how you move forward and that's how you create a lot of like general context. So I also, I, I, did, I do remember having to struggle with every time it said a meeting and there was just this one specific engineer and I was like, I would rather be coding. I, I would be coding and I was like, but, but what would you even be writing if you don't know what we're trying to do? <laughs> there has to be a certain balance, but it's interesting to see it reflected in the report. Right, right. Thank you. And what's even more interesting to me, at least, is that we asked developers as well, so individual contributors, what their biggest challenges, and um, they gave a variety of responses, but the top response was uh, sharing knowledge. And I know that you are both very forward going with, with sharing knowledge with the world. Camille has also published, Juan Pablo is publishing. Do you have any tips for our listeners about sharing knowledge internally? What uh, could an individual contributor do to, to enhance this more? What could a manager do to kind of propagate this sort of knowledge sharing? Uh, it's so hard, right? I, I, I have a lot of uh, sympathy. That one I don't have an easier answer for because like, so here's a challenge, right? Like, how do you share knowledge? The best way to share knowledge is to write. I think giving talks or, you know, doing podcasts like this and things like that. I mean, those are very, those are useful, but they tend to be somewhat ephemeral, right? Like people might watch the talk or listen to the podcast or, you know, go to the meeting as it were, learn a little bit, but anybody who wasn't there, there's sort of a, you know, a decay as to how much attention people really pay to verbal communication in that way. But writing is hard. A lot of people are not very good at writing and it takes a lot of time. It takes me a lot of time. I'm good at writing. At this point, I think the English minor I got in college, you know, has definitely paid for itself. But I don't think, you know, a, a lot of engineers are just not, not great writers. Some, some are, and that's great. You know, if you're a great writer as an engineer, like use that skill. But the thing about writing is like, it takes a lot of time. You have to be very thoughtful. Um, you're never as clear as you think you are. I mean, anyone who's worked with an editor. So like when I wrote The Manager's Path, right, I had been blogging for a while. I thought I was already a pretty good writer. Let me tell you, like working with an editor and having that editor be like, I don't understand this. Like, this just isn't clear to me. And you're just like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm so clear. How can you not understand what I'm saying there? 
you know, it's a very humbling experience. So even people who are good writers are probably not as good writers as they think they are. <laughs> um, we can all be better writers. So I, I think knowledge sharing, the pro challenge of knowledge sharing is it's very time consuming and doing it well is very time consuming. And then at the end of the day, you're still limited by what people will actually absorb. And you can be the clearest writer or speaker in the world, but people have to hear things a lot of times or read things a lot of times before it really sinks in. I think a lot of new managers actually have this naive idea that you say something once and it's done. And like, oh, I said it once. It's like, why didn't you go do that thing, right? Um, and particularly like managing up, right? People think that, oh, I told my boss this once, like it should know. Like, no, definitely not. Let me tell you, as a senior manager, like you need to tell me three times at least. If you tell me three times, I will hopefully take you seriously <laughs> and remember what you've said to me. So I think knowledge sharing, it's just very hard to do. The best thing you can do is like make time and intention for it and actually like spend the time writing down things or giving talks or preparing preparing content. But I also think a little bit of it is like, people are just not gonna know. And you are gonna be answering questions on Slack that they could have figured out themselves if they had just read the documentation, but they're not gonna do it. People don't read the documentation. They don't, they don't pay attention to your talks. And I think knowledge sharing is really just like communication is hard. I unfortunately don't think there's any kind of great silver bullet for that. I do, again, I do think like, a lot of the remote practices that we're being all being forced to figure out probably help a bit, right? When you're forced to write things down and be explicit and you have like a, a written backlog of uh, chats or a written email chain or a document, that can be helpful, but I don't think it's like the perfect panacea to getting everyone on the same page and, and you know, having that sort of perfect knowledge sharing and understanding. The paradox of people should write more, but also people don't read is super interesting because I remember like I would write a lot. We, we ran a distributed team, but I would also find that half of my team had no idea about what I was talking. Even when I share like a monthly in review email that summarized things, I was like, oh, did you read? It's like, no. So, so people should write more and people should read more. <laughs> I would imagine an aspect of this is people want to have more opportunities to mentor others or at least that's what I found in my team. I would run a culture survey every three months and something that would usually come up is, I wanna be mentored and I wanna mentor. And what I would repeat would be, no one here needs permission to either be mentored or to mentor, right? You wanna share your knowledge, you're looking for opportunities to grow, it's a senior engineer, there's people who are looking for it, like. And I would have very senior engineers, one, one who was a, a principal engineer, like, I, I just, I want to mentor someone. Like, but what are you waiting? I would say to those who answered the survey from the angle of mentoring, sharing knowledge with others and their, and their peers, that you don't need permission to be mentored or to mentor. And a portion of like being a good mentor is to be able to identify who needs some of that and sort of like approach and get that experience yourself because otherwise you're you're not going to have anyone to share your knowledge with. I, I would actually say that that's why I reached out to Camille. I was looking to learn about a few things and and as like, hey, hey, would you mind coming for coffee or something? And that's that's exactly how we met. Mentoring is a great way to share knowledge, but unless you find like a, a way to approach people, then you're not going to be able to do it. 
Right. Thank you. Both of what you said just made it sound like a lot of it depends on proactivity from your perspective. And I, I think we should all take that to heart and whoever's listening should think about how they can be more proactive in this sense of sharing knowledge. I would like to move on to another really interesting part of the survey, which is um, hiring. We all know that um, a good software engineer is hard to find and um, and a good software engineer who is a good match for our team is even harder to find. And perhaps not interestingly, employee referral has been the highest result in our report for the past years. And the top answer for this question, what do you do to hire good software engineers? How do you come by good software engineers has been getting through networks and having your employees refer their friends or their former colleagues. What are some of your methods? Have you ever worked with a good referral program that you would like to share with us? Or do you have some sort of tips for for our listeners as to how to encourage um, their employees referring their good friends? My strategy for recruiting is a little unorthodox in that I recruit or I try to recruit myself directly and, and to teach my managers to do so as well. I believe that the best recruiters that I have are hiring managers and myself. So at Splice, for example, I, I believe I hire the first 35 folks directly. I was moving myself along the process. I was usually the first person you'd meet. Towards the end, I was the last person you'd meet. But I found it extremely effective to be the person who is trying to reach out to me. And when I am hiring to invest 50 or 60 or 70% of my time, just talking to people and, and, and reaching out because so many companies rely on either third parties or external consultants or even recruiters who are sometimes don't understand the culture that you're trying to sort of build or the process of building software. There is a differential in understanding and we're also saturated by inbound requests. So when someone with a title or who, who has a little bit more clout in the organization reaches out to you, you're more likely to respond. And I generally, I think I generally approach people who aren't looking for jobs necessarily. I like working with, with people who have a lot of experience, who are like comfortable. And I, and I do like the challenge of trying to convince someone to come work with me and, and, and for me. So my strategy has usually been teaching managers and, and doubling down on the fact that managers are recruiters. And then eventually, yeah, once your org gets to a certain size and you, you can't keep doing it, it, it becomes unsustainable and, and managers do have to focus a lot more on, on building the product or whatever you're doing, the business. But that's that's the the, the first part. And then then building a partnership with a with a good recruiting organization within ideally within within your even if it's one or two people um, who understand the business that you're trying to build and the product that you're trying to build is 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 really really useful i i believe that the engineers who i want to work with are interested in the business in the problem that we're trying to solve over the technology that we use 
and that is a good filter for me. I understand that some people really love to work on on React, and it's great, and I and I think that's awesome. But if they like React more than building a product that helps musicians make music, make money in music, then good. Fair, like have have fun building React and playing around with hooks or whatever. We started as an Angular company. It's there. It's not going anywhere, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever you see. But here, you're not here to play around in Angular. You're here to build a product for music, for musicians. And that's what I'm looking for. So I, I do try those angles and, and try to filter out because there's also an expectation mismatch usually that happens. If I tell them, oh, you're going to write all the React you want, then you, you really believe that you're here to just write code and not build a business. And I like building businesses. I like building products. So that, that would be one of the tips that I'd say is learn to talk about your business, about your product in a way where you can convince others beyond whatever technical stack that you have, that this is, that this matters and it's going to, it's going to help them grow. That's my at least approach. Thank you. You know, honestly, I think Juan has a very good answer to this. I'm not sure I have very much to add. Like, if you want people to refer people to your company, they will do so if they are happy. <laughs> they will also do so if they think their friends can get hired. And, I, you know, I do think some companies have interviewing processes that are punitive. And, you know, they feel it's like you're reluctant to refer your friends because you're like, I think they're going to have a terrible experience in interviewing here, even if they get an offer. So do I really want to refer them? And I think there are a lot of companies like they want to have this hard interview process so that we only hire the best or whatever, whatever that means. And like you want to screen when you're hiring. But at the same time, if people leave your interview process with a bad feeling about the people that they interacted with or the company, they're not going to want to come work there. And if your employees refer people and then their friends have that experience, they're going to stop referring their friends. And, and I think people really like underestimate that. I think that happens a lot. I think at a lot of companies that happens and you know, you wonder why you're not getting enough employee referrals and your the employers are like, well, like you're never going to hire my friends because they don't know big O notation. You know, they don't know what a red black, black tree is and they don't really want to like study their old computer science textbooks before the interview. So like, they're going to keep working wherever they are. And I think it's a fine line, right? Like everybody needs to have the, the interviewing standards that they think is right for their company. But I do think a lot of companies hurt themselves on that because they try to be Google, for example, and they try to like, you know, mimic that style of interviewing when it's not really appropriate for their team and for their company. And that causes people to have bad interviewing experiences, get rejected. And then when you refer a friend and they get rejected, it, it feels kind of crappy because then it's like, oh, like I referred this friend and I now I have to have this awkward conversation about how like my company decided not to hire them and they feel ashamed a little bit. that They didn't get the offer and you feel bad that they had a bad experience. And like that can really kind of screw up a friendship. Right. So like you got to be a little careful if you really want to rely a lot on referrals. There are downsides to relying on referrals because it tends to mean that you get a bit of a homogenous company, if you've already got a homogenous company, referrals will just, you tend to reinforce that homogene homogeneity. If you actually have a fairly diverse company, on the other hand, referrals can, I think, 
you know, contribute to more diversity. So it's, I think it's actually a little bit of it just reinforces whatever's already there. But I think you've got to be mindful of the kind of experience you're going to give people coming in to the interview if you really want to rely on referrals. Right. Thank you. Thank you. And it just sounds like both of you were kind of hinting on companies and people working at those companies having a need to be authentic, sort of, like finding what they truly do and why they do it and be in line with that and to be able to propagate that you have to have a good understanding of what your company does. In connection to this, with regards to the criteria that companies are looking for, our results show that the top criteria for developers to be hired is a willingness to learn. Almost 50% of our respondents said that they look for a willingness to learn. And interestingly, soft skills went up in the past years from 7% to 25%. So it sounds like a lot of people are looking for soft skills and willingness more so than actual hard skills that developers have already learned. What are some of your tips on on how to measure willingness to learn or what criteria our listeners should be looking at when when talking with new candidates? So I will rephrase soft skills as core skills. And I'll say that there's two sort of camps in software development. There is open source software where people build things for themselves or for others and like independently. And then there's businesses that are built on software. And I'd say that professional software engineering is subject or is severely impacted by the perspective of open source software. Because when, when I am writing, when let's say for example, there's this library, NPM library that I published for myself because I was working on a game and I, and I did it because I wanted to learn something, right? And it, it brings me a lot of joy until I start getting issues reported on GitHub, but that's a different thing. And then I join a company that hires me because of that library. But now I'm suddenly, I'm not working to maintain that library. I'm, I'm there to build whatever business they are in. And even though I thought that I was going to have all this experience, all this opportunity to, to learn about what I was building, I'm actually just fixing CSS bugs every day because that's what matters to the business at the moment. And this sort of mismatch in expectations, I would say is the cause for like lack of engagement in many software companies because people come in believing that their job is to learn and not to build a business because we also see like, oh, like look at this person gets paid to do open source and this person, we like, we kind of idealize how much learning we want to do, we want to do there and how like good of a programmer you have to be. And we have devalued what is really necessary to do professional software development, which is to be a team, right? You need to collaborate to build software as a team, you need to be able to communicate well, you need to be able to decide in these soft skills, which, which, which is why I call them core skills is there. I found them that there are more important in professional software development. There are more important because I can teach you 
how to code. I can teach you how to split up your PRs and to be smaller and to do it in smaller batches. And we can use code reviews or not, or other things to make you a good programmer. But teaching you how to talk to other humans or teaching you how to communicate decisions or teaching you how to write, teaching you things, teaching you is really, really hard. So I would rather look for people who have already have those bases and then sort of maybe complement a few things, unless I'm, I'm writing like a compiler or something that really needs, that, that I can't teach you because I don't know. So how I've done this in my interview loops is by deciding the, the interview process that will show me whether people can communicate or not, where they can ask the right questions or not and making, making it a lot more focused on the collaborative aspects of software than the what we call hard or technical things. Yes, of course, you need to be a programmer and I and you should be able to demonstrate that you've done it before if you're a senior person or that you have potential if, you, if you're not. But if you can talk and, and you can convince and you can ask the right questions, then you're further along in my in my team than, than not. And then the other thing I've done is to encourage people to be self-learners. The 90-day plan that everyone gets when you onboard into, into a team of mine is very vague and ambiguous on purpose. It tells you, look, the first 30 days, you, you should have had a one-on-one -on -one with a chief business officer. Who are they? You'll find out, right? You can Google, you can ask someone, how do they get in your calendar? You can, but I'm not gonna, like, I am not a fan of coddling or being like a parent. I hired adults and should be able to figure out who is where, and I'll give you a guide, right? I don't want you to get lost, but the first 90 days sort of show you that you should be able to ask questions and find yourself. And there's spaces for that. There's a channel that's called newbies and there's all these things where you can ask and it's encouraged and, and we create like an environment for that to be, but you're also expected to figure things out on your own. And, and that's been very helpful for me at least. I guess the one, one thing I will say is that evaluating soft skills, core skills, whatever, however you call them, you know, I've seen various attempts to do it. I do think people still end up over-indexing on um, technical interviews because they're easier to evaluate. One thing that I find is that I've started having my teams do is trying to interview for people who have a sense of uh, what I call customer empathy. So asking them about times where they have you know, needed to help a colleague or help someone understand how to use their software or think about, you know, how, how do they approach building software that other people can use? And that's because I, you know, I run a platform team. But the goal there is to not just identify people who are capable of writing good software, but people who are thinking about the people who are going to use their software and that are willing to communicate with those people, willing to answer questions for them or write documentation or being proactively thoughtful about the people who will ultimately use the products that they're they're building. You know, and I think that's particularly important for engineers building software for other engineers. I mean, I think it becomes a little more naturally when you're talking about product engineers building products for external parties. Like you almost have to be thinking that way to do that job well, certainly at small smaller companies. I think a lot of times people building platform software think that they are exempt from having to think about users because 
their whole job as, as, as Juan even said, it's like, well, I'm building a compiler. Like, right. What does it matter? And like, the fact of the matter is somebody has to use that compiler. And when the error messages don't make any damn sense, you're frustrating very smart people and wasting a lot of time. They're going to email your mailing list or go on your GitHub and ask questions and file issues, and you're going to have to deal with it. And so even when you're writing a compiler, even when you're solving extremely hard, deep technical problems, at the end of the day, somebody's using the thing that you're building. Like we're all building building blocks for someone to use. And if that person doesn't understand the thing that you built, they're going to come to you and ask questions. There's no functional world. There's no functional company in which you can avoid having to ultimately talk to another human being and answer something. So, you know, I do think that like thinking about what's important for your company and, you know, it can be different things, but if you're building platform software, I actually strongly advise, like ask them about how they have explained their work to other people, how they've supported their projects, um, you know, how they deal with somebody who's using their software and doesn't understand and isn't using it properly and make sure that they are thoughtful in the way that they approach those interactions. They're thoughtful in the way that they approach interactions with their, with their colleagues, frankly, because, you know, I think that's, that's a big thing that we want from people. When we talk about soft skills, we really just want people who like want to collaborate and want to work with us and, and are willing to try, even if they're not the best communicator in the world, like at least they're willing to try to communicate versus holding a belief that they're too good for them. Thank you. It's really great to see how you guys actually talk to each other without words and, and how you are, you are saying yes when the other one is saying something that you truly agree with and have strong feelings for. We are almost, well, not almost, we are totally out of time. Thank you for being here today with us. It's been a really enlightening experience and I am just so happy to have you both. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. It actually shows how well you understand the industry. Very quickly, because we are short on time, just please tell our listeners where they can follow your work or get in touch with you if they want to follow up on any of these opinions. Uh, sure. I think the easiest way to find me is on Twitter at Skamil. So it's S-K-A-M-I-L-L-E. And then my Twitter bio has various links to my blog, where to buy my book. Uh, but yeah, Twitter, I think is probably the easiest way to keep in touch with me because I, I haven't been in the habit of blogging too, too much lately. Same for me. Uh, my Twitter is at Buritica, B-U-R-I-T-I-C-A. We'll probably link it in the, in the description of this podcast, if I'm not wrong. Uh, and yeah, I'm launching my blog at some point over the next week, get to play around with all the new technologies <laughs> to try to figure out how to roll it out. But now I'll be I'll be doing a little bit more writing so you can follow up there. Thank you for, for having us, Carolina. This has, been, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Today, our guests were Camille Fournier and Juan Pablo Buritica. And we talked about the state of software development. I am Carolina Tot, and I hope to see you next time. Thanks for staying with us. This was the Level Up Engineering Podcast by Apex Lab. Check them out at apexlab.io. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content, and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time.